0: Welcome to the health tech podcast here we talk about everything healthcare and technology and I'm your host James summery Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Jerry Biggs, and he's the founder and chief executive at NCL, which is a specialist investment management firm focusing on high growth tech companies, predominantly in health tech and energy sectors. So Jerry's got over 15 years of investment and corporate finance experience, and he sits on the board of a number of high growth businesses. Previously he's worked for the Northern Trust Global Investments, he's worked at HSBC Investment Bank, he's worked at BOS Investments and has been the investment director for a UK based family office too so loads of investment experience. So NCL they invest in Seed and Series A uh, and they can deploy all of their expertise and capital to help companies achieve that early inflection point that you often need at that stage. So hope you enjoy this episode with Jerry, guys. Cool. And so, yeah, so Jerry, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Um, how are you doing this morning, mate?
1: I'm very well. I'm very well coping with lockdown.
0: Yeah, I actually played tennis yesterday because I was allowed. It was fantastic. I played some singles. I stayed two meters. I had my own tennis balls and I had a good workout for a change. It was absolutely wonderful. So um, I can now cope with lockdown if I'm allowed to do that because that was the only thing that I was really missing. Not much else of my life changed to be honest, but um, yeah, no, all all a bit more um, pleasurable now that I can do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I I tend to go out for an early morning run and I run across a golf course. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, um, that's been fairly open and free for the last few weeks. And then they've just brought it back in today. So they could tell my running route, which is a, a bit annoying, but uh, <laughs> to see some other people back out early in the morning.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think people are so keen to get out and... Yeah. <laughs> and play sport again and watch sport and like I can't wait for to, to be able to watch stuff and it, I'm surprised at just the gap it's left in my life actually. I didn't really not realize I was so into sport like playing it, and watching it, but yeah, the void the void's been crazy.
1: I know, I know. And what do you do to fill that void? That's the problem. And there isn't there isn't much else to do
0: and this is it and the, 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 what i was saying yesterday actually is like the value of work is just magnified because it's the only thing in my life at the minute it's like doing more work and just sitting on my laptop and doing stuff and so like the, the i suppose the the winds are magnified but so, so are the anxieties and everything everything else that surrounds being an entrepreneur well, legal, legal, but, um, i
1: think that's the, the reason for so many zoom calls isn't it as well is everyone is zooming each other because they uh, uh they feel the need to communicate apart from anything else but oh, this it's is it yeah back-to-back calls at the moment
0: yeah, this is. I'm quite bad for it actually because I, I, I tend to you know shy away from them and I, I'm introverted by nature and so like any calls in my day, I'm like oh I've got to do another call, I've got to do another call. But then, yeah, when I eventually get on them and have a chat to people, much like I am right now, it's actually very very enjoyable. So um, yeah, I suppose I should have uh, potentially got into a bit, that a bit more. But now I've got tennis, I don't need it to be perfectly honest. But, but anyway, we digress. Um, yeah, Jerry, so great to have you on, mate. Um, obviously, we've had a quick chat before, so I know a bit about your background and everything that you're doing with the fund. But obviously, it'd be great for our listeners um, if you could give us a flavour for all that stuff and uh, tell us your story, mate.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, um, I mean, I, I'm uh, not a natural to, to this sector. I started uh, my career uh, nearly 25 years ago now. I was uh, 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 I was in the army. as an army officer for 10 years. And, and I left... Uh, um, quite suddenly and uh, uh, when I started a family and thought I needed to do something serious with my life <laughs> uh, and, and, and looking around for a little while and thinking what am i going to do I, uh, um, uh, uh, I I finally went into financial services and ended up in a in a private bank uh, for a couple of years um, and then I sort of drifted towards towards the institutional fund management side of life i started working for a consultancy where Uh, we were consulting to invest different investment managers about products and how to structure the products and how to create the office the right back office environment for their funds
0: yeah
1: Um, and then i ended up in uh uh, in hsbc um uh doing some uh uh, some some fund management there and then i finally went over to an american uh bank called northern trust uh and worked for their global investment team there and they brought a lot of their their institutional products into the uk market as a Sort of following to their custody offering, uh, and uh, uh, and I, I I help there.
0: So, a real financial pedigree then, born and bred. You're pure bred in in the finance world.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. After after ten long years in the army, I had to do something, and I had to sort of really reprogram myself, which is very difficult. I could probably say that. For those ten years, I didn't even know what a pension fund was. Apart from, the fact <laughs> that I was going to be very safe on the other side of it and have something that paid me out in, in, in retirement. Yeah. Um, and uh, and since then, I have had to learn, you know, the, the complete dynamics of uh, uh, of those funds and uh, uh, and how we make investments and returns and uh, and learn my way around the city pretty quickly. And that's it's been such a, a good point. man I mean, I mean, even, even
0: when I was a doctor. And, you know, that was, that was only what, like five years ago or if that, I had absolutely no idea about any of this stuff. And since I've learned it there's just been this amazing kind of clicking of, oh, right, this is how the entire world works. And it is all financially driven and yeah. so ma- what markets actually are. Like if you asked me to define what a market was as a doctor, it would certainly not be <laughs> the definition that I'd give now. And as you say yeah. about like, about how funds actually work and how wealth is created and how that then flows down into the system. I had absolutely you know, idea. I, could, I wouldn't have even told you, been able to tell you how a pension worked like what it actually was. No, I know, um,
1: it's quite scary, but I, I think even when I, when I came out into the big wide world and started learning this new trade, you know, the, the first part to me was that, that trying to, to find someone who could explain how the entire system works, yeah. banks to, to funds to, um, to custodians, all of that sort of stuff worked around the products. It was very, very hard for someone to explain it end to end. And yep. So I found myself, you'd have a fund manager who could tell you what he did in his very specific sector, but not how the back office operated or how a trade was processed or, yep. or, or, or how the, the, the bank supported them. So it was, it was a real voyage for me over sort of six to 10 years to try mm. and put all of that together, not just learn about one single part of it, but learn mm. about the, the entire financial system and how that was constructed.
0: Interesting. What do you think the army taught you? in terms of what what skills or traits or I guess habits did you sort of carry through from the army into what you do now? Because actually it's funny, Like, there's a few people that have been on here that have got military backgrounds and yeah, they all seem to have taken something from that early career and, and it's still with them today.
1: Well, I've, I've got to say that I found, um, I found it particularly difficult adjusting to uh, coming into the financial services sector. Um, I think the the army teaches you, particularly for the, for the officer class, a lot about leadership. Yeah. And when you come into the larger companies, you see a lot of management, but very little leadership. Mm. And and the city needs strong leadership, uh, and and it and it somehow lacks that, and it and it, it doesn't really pick up on on the value of it, or 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 uh, um, uh, or, or or how to take that forward. So. I was a bit of a sort of lonely soul in a couple of the larger firms that i worked for and um and, and i didn't really feel comfortable at all and i've got to say I, I think you know my my head was down after a few years of working for the larger um, the larger organizations um even though my job was relatively interesting i i found it very restrictive and not a lot of open thinking and that really what, what's led me back to starting up my own business 10 years ago okay. when i finally find that, that actually entrepreneurialism is is very similar to some aspects of being an army officer in the fact that you know you're even in a a very bureaucratic system you are very quickly given um a long rope to go and hang yourself with yeah you have to make very fast decisions in a very fast changing market and you have to show leadership and i think that's the difference with the smes and when you're leading a small company it really is being a leader and not a manager. So I think I finally after sort of 10 years of going around to different businesses finally found my uh, uh my salvation in running my own business.
0: So tell me about that then. What was it?
1: Well, in fact it was the last financial crisis that, that really did it for me. I was uh, um, I was working for um uh, for Northern Trust Global Investments at the time. Um and we had the 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 crisis Lehman's had, had gone down. Um, mm. And uh, uh, within our product range, some of the, the sort of the, the funds were, were suffering uh, quite dramatically. Uh, and we've been talking to a lot of uh, institutional investors and family offices about where the future would go. And we, uh, well, I, I just decided that it wasn't for me, that the future wasn't going to be um, in a large institutional fund manager. But uh, there were different ways of doing things and new approaches to be taken. So I went with a, a, an old business um partner uh, of mine and we uh, uh we established well on his behalf he sold his business we established a, a family office and so i helped him found that and i became the cio and managed a lot of his direct investments for oh, nice. uh, a few years and uh, and and that went particularly well um but on the back of that it, it it spurred me to think right i want to run my own company and uh Roughly 10 years ago now, on the back of the family office, they, they gave me a little bit of money to go and uh, uh, start something that we called, we called Narek Capital at the time. Mm. Um, and Narek Capital was a was a, a, an initiative between um, this family office and the government to look at the commercialization of technologies. Interesting. Uh, and it really revolved, first of all, around one of their uh, the government's very large testing centres called Narec, which was the National Renewable Energy Centre and uh, we'd been working in some guys with this uh, entity for a while um, but they needed to become far more commercial and they realised that a lot of the IP that was being created from UK PLC particularly in the renewable sector at the time um, really wasn't uh, making it out to market and they weren't getting any commercial return from it. And that sort of transpired for UK PLC. If you look, we're incredibly good at innovation, um, but we're very, very poor at commercialization. Uh, And Eric Capital was sort of set up to tackle that issue uh, and to bring public and private together and work out how we could um, bring value to UKIP. So it it did originally start off in renewables that then very quickly opened itself up into other sectors, including healthcare.
0: Very cool. What sort of stuff did you do in healthcare then? Or what organisations were you working with or kind of, yeah, what was, what was the take on health tech or healthcare?
1: Well, uh, so for us, the, the, the first, uh, first real step into healthcare was uh, we, well, some, some of the viewers may remember that uh, um, Pfizer withdrew from the UK probably about seven years ago now, and they had a very big centre, um, uh, R&D centre in, um, in the, the, the deepest, darkest ends of, of Kent, in England. And uh, um, they withdrew out and there was nearly 7,000 staff redundant overnight. Wow. Um, a huge facility left there uh, with uh, uh, not doing very much. And it was a state-of-the-art facility. Um, wow. So some, uh, after a bit of a sort of rush sales process, some uh, uh, chaps that we knew bought the facility and we were invited down to help them to uh, put a commercial strategy around that. Um, and, and really help drive innovation coming into the centre that can use that use really high tech pharmaceutical facilities. Um, and as oh, result- I see. So that so all
0: of the all of the guts of the building were still there. Everything was still in there. That was just vacant and so it was, it gagging was for an vacant, opportunity yeah. for people to come in and use it.
1: Yeah. So 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 um, so Pfizer had, had really limited their staff down at the at the time, and wow. uh, a lot of the labs and things were were were, were open. So we were able to create a, a, a strategy around it to utilize those laboratories. And, and right at the time, a lot of the, the, the healthcare community or the life science community in particular was, was changing and a lot of SMEs spinning out. And Pfizer yeah. was a great example. You know, it, God, what it an opportunity the for them to
0: use those, th- those facilities.
1: Very much, so. Very much so. So we learned a lot about the types of facilities, the types of companies who could use them, um, how we could <laughs> yeah. those provide those to a... Uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to create value within some of the young companies, and it worked incredibly well for us. And uh, that was really why we we constructed our first fund.
0: Very nice. And so, what's next?
1: <laughs> well, so so um, today we we, uh, we we now purely focus on a, the healthcare sector. Uh, we've got about twenty uh, different technologies uh, in the healthcare sector that we've we've invested in over the last five or six years. Um, we did, we've we got a, a, a sort of managed portfolio of direct investments, and then we've got two funds. Our first fund was based all around our activity at, at, uh, at Discovery Park, the old Pfizer centre, and our company's yeah. based there. Um, and then our second fund we launched last year, um, and that's called the Health Technology Fund 2. And we are uh, we we did a first close of that fund last year. We're we're actively investing at the moment in time, but we're still um, bringing in new LPs uh, uh, into the fund as we as we progress over the next twelve months.
0: Very nice. So, what sort of technology? I mean, what what great name for a fund, right? The Health Technology Fund. I mean, it's ideal straight down the line very ron seal does exactly what it says on the tin right so what sort of things are you looking for looking at how big is the fund ticket sizes what sorts of people are you, would you like approaching you that's that side of things
1: yeah, sure. Well, I, I think the, the the key thing for for us is, we, you know, we are an institutional investor, so most of the uh, the investors with us are, are are professional institutions, corporates, or or local authorities uh, or government entities. So um, those are the types of investors we we, we typically um, look for. The fund is 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 relatively early stage fund. It's it's pre, and we would say it's just pre Series A. Yeah. um that, that's that's pretty broad brush depending on where we're investing but uh um what we're really looking for is to make an investment before we see um a value inflection event coming and we believe that the uk market for for healthcare or health technology is extremely good and we can get in quite early we can uh if we can pick the right technologies we can get in at that that formative stage we can take them through and we can get a significant value inflection, not just by adding cash, but by adding our experience and our, and our uh, expertise in frontline healthcare to really drive value and growth in those businesses. And uh, so coming in a bit earlier than the, the average VC um, and bringing others with us, bringing other, uh, other sophisticated investors alongside us who can, uh, who can leverage from our due diligence and our, uh, and our activities in that area. And they're really driving uh, early growth in that company and uh, uh, into the larger rounds.
0: Nice. And Jerry, just off script here. So, is that is that is that health technology fund? Is that is that different to NCL Technology Ventures, or is this?
1: Yeah. So, so uh, NCL Technology Ventures is the fund management company. So we we are health got it. NCLTV is is this is a specialist VC in health tech, basically
0: got it okay so
1: and health and health technology fund two is our second fund
0: got it and so the okay fine and so the, the first fund attached to the discovery park and all the rest of it is yeah. that is that run its cycle or is that still that's, are you harvesting uh, that's, fully
1: invest, that's fully invested yes and we're, uh, we're harvesting those investments now. okay
0: fine so let me ask you this then so the, the the first fund that is fully invested was that well let me yeah let's phrase it this way what did you learn from doing that first fund that you then brought into the second fund what changes did you make in terms of the, the thesis or your approach or i don't know how you market the fund i mean anything really i guess i guess this is aimed at uh, the investors listening, the people that yeah, might be raising yeah. funds, but also I guess the entrepreneurs just to get an insight into how people, you know, migrate their funds and, and, and as they go through, um, as they go through their cycle as a VC. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I would say that the, the, the first one was was really a, an early voyage for us and, and our first investors to uh, have a look at how the sector was behaving And where we saw key trends start to emerge and where we could drive um, significant value in the future. So they were relatively smaller investments, but in key areas for us where we were really testing to to prove our thesis, if you like. Yeah. Um, and, And that worked incredibly, incredibly well for us. And it allowed us to form some key opinions on how the market was going to develop. And where we could we could see um, exponential areas of growth in health technology um, evolving, and where we could make a significant difference as well, and that's really helped us to shape our offering, our offering within the, the health technology fund too. So
0: interesting, it's sort of your version of product market fit, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah, Well, it is yeah, product yeah. market fit, quite frankly, because you know you've got a product and there's a market for it, um, and so i mean i'll ask you directly then so so where was that i mean in in terms of the the tech i mean do you look at particular technologies do you prefer looking at particular customers is it that you like certain business models i mean so where did you find your sweet spot in terms of what you do like who you can help who it is worth you you guys adding value to
1: well i think you know we we've done a lot of uh, I mean, as as I just said, with the first one, we we were able to really look at the market and and build that thesis of of where we should invest. And you know, we saw the healthcare market. It's been a very difficult market for investors previously, and you know, the uh, returns have been quite lackluster um it, it's very very difficult because you know products to be adopted within a healthcare system face all sorts of difficulties from from procurement to actually being used by the by, by the end uh, oh yes <laughs> we're very with familiar the, with that on this podcast <laughs> uh, and, uh, and you know reimbursement models and everything so so you can't be a generalist in this space you yep. have to be a specialist
0: yeah and you have
1: to understand all of the aspects of frontline healthcare, from from the insurance models to the payers to the, the yeah. users, to the procurement aspects, and and we needed to build our model to understand and be able to influence all of that. And and so, if you look at our team and uh, the the thesis that underlines it, we really specialize on knowing frontline healthcare. Mm. That's a very broad area because it it will it will. It'll look right away from drug discovery to drug delivery. Yeah,
0: but, <laughs> indeed. But
1: yeah. within that, there are really core themes where where we can see that there's going to be uh, exponential growth in the near future and where we as a team can add extreme amounts of value to the right companies uh, that come through.
0: Cool. So who? what sort of companies are exciting you then that sort of fit into that sweet spot? I mean, you don't have to name the companies, but what sort of areas are they in?
1: Yeah, well, I think if you you'll get a if you look at our portfolios so far, you'll you'll find uh, some of them look fairly random and, uh, and <laughs> dispersed across the, the healthcare space. But but there is method in that madness. And, <laughs> uh, so so, so in, in all of the sectors that, that we would look at, we we can see some some real emerging themes. I think one of those is around is around data science and mm-hmm. um, the the real emergence of uh, of, of computing capability to to help within healthcare. The second area for us is around optimizing patient outcomes. So technologies that can really drive impact. Um, and change to to to, to, to the, the end user, the end patient. Yeah. And a third area that we see significant growth is is in driving efficiencies throughout the healthcare system. Yeah. So that could be anything from patient you know, record management, uh, uh, etc. Et so there are those are the broad themes that we're looking at. But within there, we can see some r- real growth areas where uh, where we're focusing ourselves. Um, I for but our latest investment is. Uh, uh, it is in precision medicine, nice. uh, which we see as a, a very, very large growth area. And this is a precision oncology company um, that's uh, uh, just about to go through uh, um, quite a large clinical trial with us in the UK. Um, and uh, uh, and you know, we we see that as, as a real a real step change in the, in the ability for for us to to look at, at, at medicine on a personalised level mm. uh, and understand a bit more of the value chain that's going to emerge there.
0: Yeah, I, d- I definitely agree. And, and actually, you know, it's, it's nice, it's nice to hear that you, you guys have got that second one that you mentioned about, um, you know, actually looking at things that increase the quality of care. I, th- I think that's an important one, because everybody's going to talk about efficiency savings, because we know that we're dominated by a public sector health system, and that, you know, it, it just needs to be you know saving money and but then again saving money is not a business model it needs to actually do something so there's, there's all these different pressures and challenges right but I think it's interesting that you guys quite literally have a focus on on things that improve the quality of care for patients I think that's a nice very much, yeah. and very relevant and apt addition to a thesis because it really keeps you grounded and what the hell are we actually doing this for you know and I think that's very nice I think the the difficulty often with that is the is the business model because it's often very difficult to kind of monetize a solution that purely just increases quality if it's going to cost more if it's all there's going to be a knock-on down the road or all the rest of it I mean how how do you guys look at business models with things like I mean the elephant in the room here the NHS you've mentioned insurers and those sorts of models which you know you know very very applicable globally right you know rather than potentially just in the UK or even in the UK and you know certainly in the US do you, do yeah. you think, do, are you one of these people that says anything that involves the NHS is a definite no? Are you, are you one of these funds that will look at everything and have that discussion? Do you like multiple business models? Do you like things for insurers? I mean, how do you guys think of business models in healthcare? healthcare yeah,
1: healthcare? sure. Um, well, uh, I think the, uh, uh, the, the, the NHS, uh, y- you've got to know how to work with it. and, and the, <laughs> That's very true. In, in, in life, in a lifetime of, uh, of probably myself, but definitely the funds, um, you know, we are not going to change this beast. It's yeah. uh, it is the way it is. It's very very difficult to, um, for, especially for an SME, even for a large pharma company, to go through a, a procurement cycle and get products or or therapeutics adopted. We know the difficulties and the challenges there. So, I would say that anyone who tends to come in to see us to say, I'm going to sell this to the NHS. Mm -hmm. Um, It's red flag number
0: one. Um, Well, there's no such thing as the NHS, as I say on this all the time. There's just 100,000 organisations with the same logo. Um, Exactly, exactly.
1: And uh, and so, you know, that in itself makes it very difficult. However, we've always looked to say, what can the NHS do? What can it really do now? And we know that the NHS has a fantastic brand, and a fantastic reputation, and um, and those technologies that the NHS do use are some of some of the best doctors in the world, and if they're using them and and uh, and they validated them, then we know that they're good, mm-hmm. and that's a very good signal to other markets. So for us, we work very closely with the NHS. We have a number of trusts that we 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 work uh, fairly intimately on some oh, of the cool. development things. But the key to us is not getting them. We're not looking for them to adopt in any form of scale, but to help mm. us to validate and to put the name on the tin. To say yeah. that it's been through an NHS process, it's been utilized at a certain trust, it's come through a clinical trial process. That's really good for us. But we, we will always anticipate that our, our first sales will be into the private market and typically mm. offshore before it comes onshore yeah. And you know, there's
0: there's a there's a few bits about that. It's a very it's a very mature approach, right? Firstly, the acknowledgement that adoption is the hardest bit that's that eloquently puts so much of what i talk about on this podcast you know into context straight away that actually the difficulty is getting things adopted and therefore it needs attention and it needs effort and it needs resource and that's why it's not as easy to scale a services company in the nhs than it is to scale a SaaS product to b2c because the adoption b2c is literally just a click to sign up or, or whatever it is so you know we know the adoption of it into clinical workflows often is, is the most difficult bit and it needs handholding and i think I think, you know, the recognition of that is extremely important. I think beyond that, um, what was I going to say? Yeah, the, the, the fact that you've then acknowledged, okay... I mean, forgive the phrase, but quick and dirty pilot to get the NHS stamp is a very good stamp to get, a stamp of approval globally. It proves it has gone through one organisation and they all have extremely high standards, which may be very different and very difficult to go through each time. But actually it is, you know, the global stamp of quality and safety and that it gets through that and it it does increase its value globally i think that's a very mature approach and also the role of the private sector here in the uk which you know when you've got a sector like that that can buy things on common sense without necessarily the, the huge amount of evidence or particular type of evidence that might be required in the public sector it's a way of getting things to the hands of patients and clinicians and getting users and customers and actually showing data of how this works and you know, it is the role of the private sector, arguably, that that it can be adopting new innovation. And so building those relationships and having those networks is is an incredibly good way to run something like a fund that is going to be yeah. trying to, you yeah. know, and break James, these ducks. Why, right? you know,
1: time, timing is key for, for, for these people. And, and, you know, there are some dramatic changes coming in the, in the healthcare system to public and private, uh, you know, and... I mean you, you you can have a look and just to see what's happening at the moment in time. We 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 haven't for once in a, in probably the the last three months haven't mentioned COVID nineteen. But yeah. you, you know, <laughs> as a result of this pandemic, you know, we are seeing that necessity is driving change. That's you it. know, telehealth is finally here. Well, you know, that's a big shock to everyone. It's been yeah. knocking on the door for ten years and it's finally coming in, but it's, it's finally got in- its
0: value proposition. <laughs> it's finally it's here. Happened. Yeah. yeah
1: and uh, and so you know things like this do drive necessity necessity does drive change yeah. and that's good and we can see that you know organisations such as the nhs and healthcare in general that's very resistant to change normally because of regulatory pressure and uh, uh, and being far too risk averse have to under that necessity have to adopt these different procedures but also you're getting a lot of change in the regulation with the regulators yep. a lot more open and flexible, and looking at these other technologies coming through, and you're getting, and as a result of that, you're getting consumer pressure because a lot of consumers are now demanding that they they don't have to go and see a doctor; they can do this online. Yeah. Why 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 have they got a chronic condition? Do they have to be sent into A and E and block A and E and spend twenty four hours in a <laughs> uh, in a hospital bed when they could be monitored at home? And yeah. so. A lot of the realisation of consumers is, is, is driving this, and one that will obviously change the public system over time, but private private systems should be readily adopting these now, because they are the people that need to show that they're different, show that they're operating different value-added services, and those that will, will adopt that innovation early will be the ones that win through in the end.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point as well. Actually, I mean, so much of what you said has just has chimed with probably the last five episodes of this podcast, like all the different bits and bobs that I've shown from NHSX and all the rest of it. But it's it's interesting about um, uh, yeah about the private sector ad- adopting this stuff, and I think it's so important. It's it's such a role of it that it as you say it can do that because patients are customers in that situation and patients have choice as Mm. to where they put their attention time money energy and receive their care and when you put choice in the hands of people that will direct where the money goes it's up to the providers to actually provide the best quality service yeah. and therefore they can adopt these things and and actually you know you see it in the us system quite a lot and perhaps it goes too far sometimes from what people have said about you know adopting things that are just shiny and 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 bring people in but but there is a point there that when patients have choice it does force the products to be more patient friendly. And I think that's, yeah. that's an interesting thing that I think is missing in the public sector. And I, in fact, this came up quite a long time ago when I interviewed Tanya from LV. Do you know Elvi, the, the medical yeah. device yeah. company? Yeah, right. So I interviewed Tanya on here. And she made a really good point, which is that you know, female health devices that have been used on female patients in hospitals have been historically bought and procured by men at the top of organizations that have absolutely no right to make a decision on what those devices are should be and the fact that they are used on women that they will never even see or interact with and it's strange that that those patients have absolutely no say in what the device looks like that's being used on them because it's bought by somebody else and i think as you say that that's an interesting way of defining why the private sector might be very good at, at, at buying some of this stuff or at least you know driving the market slightly because ultimately the patients then have the choice i think i think that's i think that's actually so important
1: yeah and i think that's just going to become more and more apparent and i think also in the areas of sort of you know, that that patient data and things it's it, you know patients and or the consumer is realizing actually my data is valuable yeah. and but why why do i leave it in the hands of a public services organisation that will probably lose it and get it wrong and it won't be yeah. updated for years? i'll keep that data and yeah. i'll make it available to other providers and that we're already starting to see that in the US become quite a uh, a driver for change, and I think that will slowly work its way around to other markets as well. And so I think you know the the, the consumer protecting and utilizing their own data will become uh, a key driver for, for for some new technologies adoption in the future.
0: Yeah, totally. And how how do you see the the I guess the future of health tech? A bit of a broad question, but I mean, you've talked about a few different bits and bobs, but I mean, as a as a fund, as an investor, I mean, someone said a, f- a few months ago, I like the phrase that investors choose the world that we live in next, and it's kind of true. You know, if you're at the, the cutting edge of innovation, you guys decide what the next thing is that's invested in with you know relatively big check sizes and all the rest of it, and enable these innovators to go and build their stuff. I mean in the in the term that you guys are looking at as a fund and the things that you're investing in the things that you might be thinking investing in with fund 3 perhaps how do you view the future of everything that you've mentioned in terms of the next things to come through or indeed the view of the world that you like to see in terms of healthcare and that you guys have a fund as a fund are kind of advocating for yeah.
1: Well, I mean, there, there are certain dynamics in the market that we look out for, and it, you know, as a venture capital fund, particularly early stage, you really have to be thinking about where is that next market going, where is the next wave of innovation, and can I be within that cycle and, and, and reap that that initial growth? Um, you know, and we've seen it in other areas of uh, uh, of, of technology and uh, you know platforms of. Uh, have come about over the next 10 years. And healthcare has been in the background and it's been sort of, it's been finding its way along, but it's now that that time is right. And, you know, I think we're we're in a very, very good position um, to be able to to be at the forefront of this next wave, which is exactly where we wanted to position ourselves. And the the critical thing for us is that I've already said that the nature of the industry is, is changing. Consumer driven, regulatory driven, um, necessity from the pandemics—all of these things are making the healthcare system have to open up. Mm. And it's a fantastic time to be in there with the right type of technology, but we must choose where we focus our bets and where we see in this in this very large sector where those core areas of growth would would, would be, and that's where where we're looking at. But from a market position, not only is the sector changing, but the the exit potential is is really becoming exponential and there's a lot of change in that exit market which excites us um where do you where do you see the exits because at the the minute at the minute it seems to be
0: bigger companies buying smaller companies to be quite frank about it The, the ipos don't seem common and all the rest of it and and you know, digital health's taken a bit of a battering for, and, and this as this is kind of a criticism, right, in terms of the exits. So, yeah, I guess in what you just said, I mean, where where do, where do you see the exits in terms of this stuff?
1: Yeah, um, well, so we, we're seeing, I would say, three main areas we, we're we're looking at, and we're looking at the changes within those areas. The first one is 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 big pharma, yeah. And we would say that that the uh, the, the big pharma have been Rapidly uh, evolving their their models, streamlining their R and D uh, focus more on onto the blockbusters, and, and maybe at the extent of, of of not looking so much at the new wave of innovation coming in that's almost crept up. Um, behind them, mm. And so a lot of the personalization of drugs, the personalization of medicine, the use yeah. of, of technology and data to drive a lot of their processes and create efficiencies there, they haven't been on top of. And a lot of that has just been farmed out to SMEs, which is, is, is probably part of their strategy. So if you're looking at the involvement of patents, it's gone from about 40% of patents being outside of big pharma to now 72% of patents oh, wow. being with SMEs. Oh, that's interesting. So that change is, is 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 astronomical. So what's happening now is big pharma are then buying up the companies when they reach the right level of maturity. Yeah. So they, rather than carrying out the, the expensive R and D themselves, buy the company as it becomes of age and it fulfills a gap in their in their in a in a their, their, their product offering. So we are seeing a, a, a distinct change there, and, and almost a build towards a model that we can we can we can see within 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 that, that uh, uh, within that part of the, of the cycle. The, the second for us, which has been very uh, um, enlightening to see, is big tech companies moving in, and you know we're all aware of the Googles and the Apples looking at, at different provisions of healthcare potentially in in uh, in within wearables but mm-hmm. that's now going into deeper forms of tech now, right in towards genomics and, uh, and other aspects as well. And in the last year, over $11 billion has been spent by health tech in acquisitions of early stage health technologies. Mm. None of them in pre-revenue, because they're, they're making moves into this area. So into mental health, into, uh, into other aspects for, for enhancing wearables. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been a very big market. So we're seeing them as really new exit partners, particularly on the technology side of life. Mm. Away from the drugs, but into, into the technology. And the third area, IPOs. IPOs are, are, are also a, uh, you know, very lackluster. In the UK, it's been a, a very challenging market previously. Um, uh, to, to be able to get out to AIM and things. But we would always look at NASDAQ as a preferred market. And biotech's still you know, 70 to 80% of, uh, of NASDAQ, and it was doing particularly well uh, a while ago. It was probably gonna take a huge dip over the next while, but it is a natural market. Yeah. And uh, you know, if, we can, if we can reinvigorate AIM a little bit within this, 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 for a lot of our companies, they need that experience of being able to get that market exposure. So a, a step onto AIM and then a, a, as a footprint to go out to NASDAQ um, is ideal. But we find that a lot of our companies really don't have that knowledge in America uh, or Israel or other companies. They're very <laughs> experienced at doing that. Our companies don't have that knowledge and we've got to be able to give them the knowledge they need to create value and exit at value.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: it's, it's a real shame, but that's where we're driving a lot of our um, learning and how we help our companies is around a capital strategy how do we maximize value how do we create value for the founders and the shareholders along the way and how do we get out and exit this, this business is it's unfortunately but you know we've got some brilliant scientists but we haven't got brilliant entrepreneurs here who've, who've gone through this process and, and and they're very far and few between we've got to be able to impart that knowledge to these companies
0: yeah and that's an interesting point because i think that brilliance that you talk about there is to do with experience and to do with with uh, you know a lot to do with the help that they're getting from their funds and it seems like a USP of you guys is your experience personally in that you know that finance pedigree that we talked about at the start and your understanding of how to package companies pro- properly on the way to this stuff because i imagine like with a lot of these types of things the earlier you start thinking about it the better once you realize you've got that level of ambition and actually you know you've got you know the data to back it up that you're going to get there it's worth you know, starting to package yourself in the right way as soon as possible. Right. I
1: imagine. Normally when we see a company that we like, you know, we, you know, we'll take it for granted that the science is good and it's in an area we want to invest in. But, you know, the, the, the bit that we think we're going to have to do is first of all, is look at the capital strategy of the business. Mm. And we almost start as, how is this business going to exit? Yeah. and then work our way back from that to think right, so how is it going to need a finance and position itself to get towards that exit point? And that really drives us to say, well, how much money? What do we need to do? What's the next gown going to be? How's our dilution going to look with it? And all of that positions up where a lot of the companies will come in and say, well, we're valued at X and we need 5 million pounds or whatever it is. But they haven't taken into account what do we need next? And what are we going to need to get ourselves onto an IPO or, or to be at that level where we're going to be acquired? So take the other approach. Go to the other end and say, how do I exit this? And then build that model backwards and uh, and that'll lead you to what you need now.
0: Mm. And you've mentioned life sciences, you've mentioned digit, some digital health stuff, and it sounds like you guys managed to spread yourself across those things. I mean, is is that fair to say that you guys are comfortable both with some you know i mean where do you guys draw the line basically if if we call it i don't know biotech at one end and pure digital health the other so i don't know like digital therapeutics delivered purely by a smartphone app at one end and then the other end you've got you know like a a hard-hitting biotech that's on the way to ipo and that develops a test or something i mean where where do you guys sit in terms of that spread are you guys comfortable capturing it all
1: well, um, I, I think that goes back to our original point. Is you know, we we will look across the entire system from, yeah. from development to, um, to delivery. But within that, it's it's where where it's, where's technology driving change? So if it's I in see. the development part, you know, we we are not looking for pure therapeutics. We'll leave that to the bigger boys who have got much deeper pockets who yeah. can really. You know, do drug development and uh, uh, and and take those aspects forward. Um, so, in the life science area, we are we are there, but we're looking at the change drivers that's coming into to, to to how drugs are being developed and the technologies that are enabling those drugs
0: to be. Yeah, I see.
1: Faster. So, so a lot about the productionization of drugs and how that's a key area for us, rather than the actual underlying therapeutic. And and then that goes right the way to the other side. If we we, we don't naturally go towards sort of uh, the insurance world and the uh, uh, and 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 the, the more um, sort of wellness market, mm-hmm. we're, we're really looking at that that ground where where it is deployed within within frontline NHS, around primary, secondary and tertiary. Um, So how that drug might might be deployed into the hospital, how a a patient record system might be uh, within a hospital environment, those types of things. So so very healthcare-driven is is our area of speciality. And that's where we can find the biggest impact and we believe the biggest returns in the next five to ten years.
0: Got it. So that's got the ears burning of a lot of the founders listening. So for the founders listening that might think they meet that criteria right now to approach you, what do founders need to do in the room to impress you? What do they? What do they need to have? Who do they need to be? What What do the products need to have done so far? I mean, you talked about being you know just before that inflection of, of revenue and growth and traction and all the rest of it, and and you know communicating that value. I suppose is and a big part of it but yeah what do you look for in founders
1: well i it's it's inevitable in this space you know as we've already said we've got great scientists and engineers in in the uk uh, but we don't have that 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 capital raising experience and the 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 biggest thing we can say to any of those founders is you 've got to be able to one lead your team and create that team around you that can give you all of the, the all of the strengths to your weaknesses. And that normally is around the commercial aspects, around sales and marketing, scale up, um, how you position it in the financial markets. <laughs> so great science and, and understand where you're going to, but make up for your weaknesses, because as an investor, we need to see that you've got the entire package, or there's little parts that we can plug to help you, but we can we can help you accelerate from where you are now, into a, into a series A, series B and, a, and an exit. And if those components aren't there, you know, it will, it will tend to sort of raise a red flag straight away. So I think that's really critical. Um, within that, think about how you position when you come in to see an investor. And time and again, we see this done horribly wrong. So one size does not fit all. All investors are different, whether you're an angel, whether you're a VCT or an EIS fund, Mm -hmm. or you're an institutional fund, such as ourselves. And you really have to be able to to, uh, work out, who am I selling to? And what am I selling? So when you're coming in to see the fund, we might have a great scientific product that's going to save the world. We'll take that for red. But I don't need, I'm not actually a beneficiary of that scientific product. What I need to do as a fund manager is create return and yeah. also impacts impact on, on our behalf for our investors. And that sometimes, or a lot of the time, is left behind. So we'll invariably say to founders of businesses, look, think about who you're positioning the fund to with an investor. And then maybe let get over the science aspects pretty quickly and show that you have a really good comprehension around the commercial, the financial, and the investment strategy of the business, because that will impress beyond doubt.
0: It's communication one hundred and one, isn't it? Know who you're speaking to. Just know who you're speaking to. Know everything about them. Know everything that they want of you, and put your best foot forward. I mean, it, it's such a, as you say, it's one of those things that can be overlooked so easily because founders, you know, having run to accelerators and and all the rest of it that I've done, and you know the amount of pitches that that I, I still see and and stuff. If even if I'm looking at sort of personal angel stuff, it it's kind of missed and you're right. People will lean on the side of of lean into the things that they're most comfortable talking about often. And you're, and you're absolutely right that obviously scientists will be comfortable talking about science and, and innovators will be comfortable talking about innovation and what they're doing differently. But ultimately, as you say, for any investor, they're looking for a return on that investment. And so communicating, whatever it needs to be to so the recipient of that information is the most important thing. So you're, again, you're absolutely right. that, And, it, and it's just, it's the same thing about, you know, if, if you're sent a deck that isn't the investor deck, it, it won't communicate the right things for you. An investor deck is going to be incredibly different to a sales deck, a client deck, a customer deck, a user deck, you know, all these, all these different things. And you should have seven or eight versions because you won't be putting your best foot forward to the recipients of the information without customizing it for those that are hearing it. And I think you're absolutely, it's so, so, so important to do that. And yeah, it's, it's funny because, you know, when I, when I listen, I mean, I'm in a slightly different position in the space that, that I my go-to in my mind when I start seeing a bad pitch is just to, just to immediately try and help them with it, even though I'm the recipient of it and they're trying to convince me to invest or bring them into something or write a Forbes article on them or whatever it is. My, my instinct is always to try and help them in the room. Yeah. Well,
1: it's um, a very difficult thing because you do get drawn into helping the founders to 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 what's well, the other
0: side it. of your life isn't it as the as the vc you know you, yeah, you yeah. are helping companies as much as you are picking them and so yeah it's a funny yeah, one and,
1: and, but there's a fine balance there because at the same time as helping that along you've got to see that they can grasp it because yeah we're, we're investing but we're looking at who are the next investors going to be along and yeah. going to be able to beyond our rounds be able to convince series b to come in into, yeah. into the product can they can they manage the team can they manage the growth in the business can they manage the investment strategy can they convince series b that it's going to be good enough <laughs> to invest? and yeah. and that's what we're looking at so we're, we you know we're looking at a founder saying has he got that skill set uh, or has the combined team got that skill set yeah. to do that yeah and it's, it's it's a it's a, it, it's normally a concern if we it doesn't matter if it's not shaped it can be a very rough diamond but they need to yeah. be able to show that even if they haven't, they've got the, the wherewithal to know their weaknesses and build that strength within their team.
0: Yeah, that's come up a few times on this podcast as well, that it seems to be that humility and coachability are, are such important traits to communicate to investors because mm-hmm. ultimately, as you quite rightly say, th- people can have done a lot of things very well but things are going to change. Series B is a different raise to Series A. The pressures on the company are very different. The hires you need to bring in are very different. It's a very different skill set to build a company from scratch to 10 employees than to take it to 10 to 100 and to have the humility to realize that might not be you and you might need to hand over the reins even is an extremely valuable thing to show investors that, that you're willing to do. I mean, all of these things, right. It comes down to coachability and humility that mm-hmm. I think in order to build a company and, and keep it going through those different gates to raise those different amounts of money that ultimately bring the exits and the return for the investors, it, it has to be that you're coachable. It's a complete non-negotiable and, you know investors that are picking those things like yourself are going to have a lot of emotional intelligence as much as i q right and I think you know your ability to spot that in people is is going to be up there because you've uh, clearly got the track record to show it yeah so Jerry, I think actually with that we are we are actually running out of time dude and i think it's been uh, it's been a really good chat it's so easy to talk to you i think you know for for founders listening if if they're looking for a specific health tech fund. knows what they're doing in the space has has certainly got uh, you know so much going right in terms of knowing the approach and uh, understanding the pressures of healthcare with the ability to actually add really specific value I think you guys are definitely a good avenue for people to go down and uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll put the contact details of um of the fund in the description of the episode but yeah jerry if you could close us out mate with um just summarizing a bit about you a bit about what you're up to with the fund and then if you've got any asks of our audience then by all means take it away sir
1: yeah james well thanks very much for, for having me on and you know i think you know we're we're, we're at a very exciting uh, pinnacle uh, at the moment in time largely driven by uh, uh by the pandemic but you know healthcare is about to take the the, the forefront and. Health technology has, has emerged, and uh, uh, it's there. It's going to create impact, and uh, it's going to create financial return. And we've positioned our fund ready to do that. And we're we're actively looking for for, for deal flow and uh, and bringing on other institutional investors who may wish to join us on our journey. So um, please do get in touch with us either via the, via the website or email me directly, Jerry Biggs at NCLTV.co.uk.
0: Awesome. Thanks a lot, Jerry.